Well, as we talked about last week in, in beginning this Advent series, this four-week Advent series, we, we said Advent's not just some prolonged Christmas celebration uh, for, for, for the people who are, whose lives are just kind of firing on all cylinders right now. Everything's going great, and so we're, we're just trying to keep Christ in this holly jolly Christmas, and isn't it the, just this wonderful time of year, and everything's amazing. That's not it. No, Advent's a season of waiting in faith and in hope, desperation for people whose lives are marked by trouble. And we talked about this, and and all of our lives are marked by trouble. Yes, there's joy, and God God gives us help, but but this is this is what marks Advent. And so we're we're looking at some biblical songs of Christmas. And, and we last week in Isaiah chapter 9, and this week we're starting in Luke's gospel account, and we'll spend the next three weeks here. But these aren't just kind of trite, uh, happy, clappy uh, Christmas songs about baby Jesus. Those aren't the biblical songs. They, these are deep, weighty, yes, joyful, but desperate, personal, hopeful, trusting Radical songs. These are, there's, there's substance here. These are songs that point to the ultimate answer of all of our problems, and that's Jesus Christ. I said this last week, and I'll say it again. This quote from Ray Orland, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. And so today we're looking at Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, one of probably the most famous of these in Luke's gospel account. And, and that title's just from the first word of the Latin translation of, the, of this text. Oh, magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. And so the song is recorded in Luke chapter 1. But let's, let's try to enter into the context of the song before we read it together in just a moment. And so we'll look at the immediate context in terms of the narrative. And Steve set this up for us earlier We'll, we'll look at just kind of some of the conditions and the situation in the day, socio-politically, and then we're, we'll, we'll understand how this fits in the larger uh, redemptive context, the wider picture of what God is doing in history. And so one quick comment before we jump into there, and it's just the purpose of these songs. So in Luke's Gospel account, there are these four songs that, that, uh, that, that are... That, that are tucked into this narrative as he's unfolding the, the birth narrative of Christ. And, and they, serve a, they serve a purpose. And I think it can be compared to, and don't, don't take this extreme, but I, like a Broadway musical. If you've ever watched musicals on TV or on, or on live stage, songs have a unique purpose to play in those musicals. So when the actors are on stage acting, they're, they're talking to one another, and we're just sort of passively kind of watching this dialogue as they're looking at each other and acting these things out. And all of a sudden, I know sometimes, especially in like the, the movie versions, it's a little awkward. They're, you know, they're acting, and all of a sudden, you know, they break out in song, and they're looking. But, but when, they, when they're singing, they're usually looking at the audience. It's like the narrative is kind of stopping, and, and, and there, there's this... this, this we, we're entering into the songs. It's a different level of connection when you get to the songs. The songs are the, the showstoppers, we'd say. And that's what these songs in Luke's account, they do for us. The, the narrative comes to a stop. And, and the, story, the action stops, and we're, we're drawn into the meaning of the story through these songs. These songs are showstoppers. And that's intentional by 
Uh, as God has, has given us this revelation, we're, just, we're forced to kind of stop and really grasp the meaning and the significance of what's happening. And so, that said, the context. So here's what's going on. It's been over 400 years since God has spoken to His people. 400 years. Over 400 years since there's been any kind of prophetic utterance from the Lord. Over 500 years since there's been any kind of vision or sign from the Lord. And so the last word that God's people had was through the prophet Malachi. 400 years earlier. And, and this just give you a, a sense of what Malachi prophesied. He said in Malachi 4.2, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And in verse, five, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes. And then, silence. Nothing. For 400 plus years, four centuries, for over 400 years, generations have come and gone. Faithful Jewish families have rehearsed these promises of God one year after another after another. You can just picture the scene of grandparents holding little children in their laps and, and, and saying, you know, there's coming a day when the Son of Righteousness is going to rise with healing in His wings. Little kids saying, what does that mean, Grandpa? When was that day going to come? Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it going to be this year? And they say, I don't know when it's coming, but I know it's coming. It's coming. And so one generation after another would, would go to their death, having read and rehearsed and clung to these promises, these same prophecies, but still silence. Silence. So we get to the world that Mary was born into, that she was raised in. And so for a few, this was the the best of times. The world was ruled by Caesar Augustus. And and so much of the world was united under this one powerful ruler. and, 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 And that part of the world enjoyed unprecedented peace and prosperity. So much so, that, and he was so proud of this, that he claimed for himself the title, Son of God. So, so the, but the economy had flourished under his rule, and they had this common language, and transportation was easy. It was just unparalleled in, in history. And so Caesar promised the world, and to many people, it was like they, they got it. So you have Caesar, and then you have Herod. Herod is Caesar's puppet king in Judea, which is where Jesus was born, the land where Jesus was born. And Herod's day was, was the golden age for development. And so he, he built... The, the buildings that many people travel to Israel to see today. And, and we're still going back and just marveling at the, the architecture and the construction of these, these massive, beautiful, state-of-the-art buildings. And so Herod was, was likely one of the richest men who's ever lived. And, and he acquired massive wealth and power. And so, so, so for those that were connected to Herod, those that were at least spared of his paranoia... Uh, there were, they were, they enjoyed that, and there was that life was very good. So it was good in many ways, but for most people, life was very hard. And for the Jews living in Judea, in particular, it was a time of destitution. It was a time of pain and despair, and 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 doubt, and and longing, waiting. They knew God's promises. They, they knew God had given them the land where they lived. They, they, they knew God had promised to bless those who blessed them and to curse those who cursed them. But as they looked around, they found it 
hard to imagine how these things, how things had become so wrong. And so this Roman rule, despite being this era of peace, it, it was bad news for them. They weren't experiencing the good things that God had promised them as a nation. When Caesar Augustus, in the context here of, of Luke 1, when he issues this decree for a, a census to be taken throughout the land, this isn't, this isn't a good thing. This is for tax purposes. And so it's a way for those people to be squeezed out of even more taxes. And there was nothing they could do about it. They were taxed, most estimate, at least at 70%. In some areas, probably closer to 90%. So you can just imagine how hard it was for the people scraping by just to make enough to pay the taxes and to just to, to live on, to feed their families. And so some were going in debt. And because of that, they were losing their land. Land that had been in the family for generations. And, but even bigger than that, land that God had given them when they entered the promised land. And now that's going away. And so it's just, this was their life. Injustice was just a way of life. And, and, and Herod's this paranoid king he's killed thousands of people already who, who just who he suspected of maybe plotting against him he's a vicious ruler he's tens of thousands more forced into work for him for all of his building projects and, and they get next to nothing for this brutal work and so the people are hungry they're downtrodden they're, they're discouraged and there was, there was nothing they could do they, they couldn't fight the system there was a group of zealots that tried to do this once and it backfired in a big way and it just made things even harder for the people. And so you can, you can, I just want you to sense this despair, sense this fatalism. Will Herod, will Caesar and, and their ilk, will they, will they sit on the throne forever? God, you promised peace and justice and prosperity. So why are they still in charge? This is the sentiment, the, this whole nation of people waiting, desperate, longing. And so, you, I mean, you, you, I'm not trying to say our situations can be compared one to one, but you may find yourself this morning and, and there is, there, you're asking some of those same questions, expressing similar doubts. God, have you forgotten me? God, if, if you're in charge, why this? Or, or, or God, how long? How long can this go on? Why am I going through this? Why does it seem like you're not in charge? So, so own this sense of longing. Own this waiting. Own this. And even in the silence, that's, that's one of the twin purposes that we talked about last week of Advent. It's, it's waiting. Not just looking back and waiting for Christ's first coming, but it's here on this side of the cross and the empty tomb. We're still waiting for the Lord's return when He's going to set all things right. And so, but, but, but back to the story. Into this world, into this context, God shows up. And He shows up through an angel. And it's not in a big, public, flashy way. There's no writing across the sky. It's not with some spectacular, cosmic, or global, or even regional event. No, in a very private way, in a small way, an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah. We'll talk more about this next week. He's alone. He's concealed within the, the, the walls of the, of the temple. And this angel says, Zechariah, I know you're old. And your wife's old. And I, I know she can't have kids. But listen, she's going to give birth to a boy who is going to be the forerunner of the promised Messiah. And Zechariah is like, that's impossible. 
what are you talking about? And so we'll, we'll talk about this next week again. So Zechariah is muted, like the angel just zips his lips and he can't talk, can't say anything. But listen, that's recorded for us. And, and what we see is God has spoken. 400 years of silence and, 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 and yet, yet God, that, that silence has been broken. Now nobody else really knew it. Nobody else got the significance of what had taken place when he was in that temple. But this is broken. Then we find the angel Gabriel, read earlier, showing up in this little backwater village of Nazareth. This is to this little nobody teenager in this little nowhere town. And <coughs> this poor Jewish peasant girl named Mary. And in and, and this despised town in northern Israel... His angel shows up, Gabriel himself. And again, there's no fanfare. It's just, but God speaks this incredible message to her. It says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will conceive and give birth to a son. He's going to be the heir to David's throne. He's going to be the Holy One, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, the, 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 the King of Israel. And Mary and Joseph were to call him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Why? For He will save His people from their sins. So Mary's scratching her head, puzzled by this announcement, and just asks, how can, how can this be? I'm, I'm a virgin. And Gabriel's answer is, the Holy Spirit's going to do it. And, 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 and then, he, then he adds, for nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God, brothers and sisters. You believe that. We've we got to keep that in our minds always. But, but with that answer from the angel, Mary, Mary rests in what God's, God has spoken. And she says to Gabriel, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She believed God. And so then the angel also told Mary that, that, she had, that her, her once barren cousin, who's much older, uh, elderly cousin, Elizabeth, that she has conceived in her old age and born a, and, and conceived a son and she's six months into her pregnancy and so Mary wastes no time, rushes off to go see Elizabeth. She's the only one who can possibly understand the things that are going on and someone that can, can sort of, she can relate to and so she makes this long, difficult, probably 70 plus mile journey uh, from Nazareth to the, to, the, to the hill country where Zechariah and Elizabeth live and you can just imagine these two ladies meeting. Um, old gray-haired Elizabeth, who thought she'd never have a child. Now she's just three months from having this boy of prophetic significance. And here's teenage Mary. I just couldn't even conceive of, no pun intended, the thought of having a child. And uh, barely pregnant. We, we, she may not even be pregnant yet. We, we're not really told that. But she's certainly not showing yet or anything like that. And the text says that as Mary greets Elizabeth, just shalom, Elizabeth, that John, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, leaps, probably taking her breath away. Uh, I speak as one who's had a lot of experience with this, I know. Uh, we have four kids, so I know exactly what this is like. No, but... But even, I can't even conceive of, I can't imagine what that's like. But I can, I can, you can see it even as a father. You can see those movements. But, and Elizabeth, she'd felt these things before. She'd felt lots of movement from John by this point, six months in her pregnancy. This was different and she knew it. This was, this was a, a prophetic leap. I don't know what that means exactly, but. And so Elizabeth's filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to prophesy and she says some things to Mary. So look in Luke chapter 1, verse 42. Luke 1, 42. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, 
Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so... So what happens then, it's like the two of these, the, these two things, the, the John leaping in Mary's womb, uh, in Elizabeth's womb, and Mary may have even seen that, and then Elizabeth prophesying here, they, these things act together like this ignition switch that sets Mary off in praise. And so there's this joy and wonder and faith and, and hope that have been welling up in her over these days, maybe weeks, they just now gush out of her mouth in praise. And she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And so, like I said in the beginning, her song, as we're going to read it, the rest of it in a moment, it's not going to sound like the Christmas songs we've been singing this morning. You'll notice that. It sounds very Old Testament-ish. Yes, it's a word, just trust me. Don't ask Joan later, but just trust me. Um, but, but Mary's song and Zechariah's song we're going to look at next week, they, these songs, they straddle the Old and New Testaments. They sound, in some ways they're the last Old Testament songs, in some ways they're the first New Testament song. Both, but, but it's pointing to Christ. And so Mary's not singing about baby Jesus' birth. Yet, yes, her song is prompted by this promise of Christ that he's, going to, that he's coming and, and that she's going to conceive this child and this baby's going to be born. But, she, but it's, it's about the Messiah. It's bigger than her having a baby. So look again. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed for He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm and He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. That's her song. As, as I've been meditating on this song, on, the, on this text all week, just reading it over and over and over again, I've been in this, I've worked through the narrative many times, but I've never spent much time really studying the song itself. The, the thread that seems to tie this whole song together is God's mercy. And I'll hopefully make that clear. But there's mercy to Mary. There's mercy to all who fear the Lord. There's mercy to Israel. That seems to be the dominant theme. I want to read one quote from you. And this should be on the screen. Uh, this is from uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer. And, and he wrote about this song, uh, the purpose of it. And how it maybe we should interact with it And the impact it should have on us. And I, I think this is helpful. He said of this song, Mary's song... It's for the strengthening of our faith, for the comforting of all those of low degree, and for the terrifying of all the mighty ones of earth. We are to let the hymn serve this threefold purpose, 
For she sang it not for herself alone, but for us all to sing it after her. And so I'm going to listen to Mary sing this song for us and so that we can sing it after her. And so and as, 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 that, as that happens, my prayer this week as I've been praying for us and, and this morning, my prayer is, is that a the, the, the number of things would happen. Those three things. That one, our faith would be strengthened. Our confidence in Christ would be strengthened. Do you need that today? Yes, we all do. And this is why we gather every Lord's Day, that our, our faith, our confidence and trust in Jesus will, will grow more and more. This is why we're going to gather at the table this morning. So that's one thing I'm praying, and I want you to pray for as well. Secondly, that God would comfort us with this promise that God will lift up those who are low, that those who understand how much they need God. We'll talk more about this. But do you need comfort? Yes. And then third, I pray that this would terrify anybody here today who doesn't think that they need God, who thinks that they have everything and they need they need in themselves. And so we'll, we'll walk through this song together. There are three movements in the song, three aspects of this song represented by these movements, and so we'll walk through those together. Um, so first, this is, a, this is a personal song of praise for God's mercy to redeem. It's a personal song of praise for God's, God's redeeming mercy. <clears throat> and so the first movement in the song see it in verses 46 to 49. It's, it's intensely personal. Notice those first person pronouns. My, 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 me, me. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So this, this praise, is, it's personal. It's coming from her soul, spirit, that the essence of who she is, the very core of her being. That's where this gushes from. That's where this song comes from. The depths of her being. Now, we're not told. We don't, we don't, I don't know if this was a spontaneous song where, where when Elizabeth finished prophesying, this, she's just, the Spirit is working in her. She's filled with the Spirit and this just comes out. Or if this was, these were thoughts that she, a song that in since she was writing as she was making that journey from Nazareth, we're not told and doesn't really matter, but the Spirit's at work in her and this praise just comes gushing out. And her words are just, they're just oozing scripture. Law, prophets, psalms, all over the place. Just dripping with Old Testament references and allusions. So Genesis, Deuteronomy, First and Second Samuel, that prayer of Hannah in particular. Hannah's song, Job, several psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and others. Not so much like direct quotations of these passages, but, but just the words reflect this deep and general knowledge of the scriptures. She's not just rattling off religious cliches and little Bible nuggets. She's, she's demonstrating the spirit-filled understanding of the word of God. <coughs> not just the words even of the Old Testament, but the theology, the substance of the Old Testament. And you just look at all of those cross-references if your Bible has those. Just so many Old Testament references. And we'll see this again next week with Zechariah's prayer. One person said she, she tried to put virtually the whole Bible into her song. But listen, what I want you to see, she's not just seeing the Bible through the lens of her life. She's seeing her life through the lens of the Bible. That's a very different thing. She's not trying to fit the Bible into her story. She's trying to fit herself into the Bible story. 
And, and we have this temptation, and it shows up in a variety of ways. But one, you know, what, is, what does this passage mean to me? What does this mean to you? And, and we're, we're trying to fit the Bible into our situation when it's really, the question should be, what do I mean to this? How, how do I fit into the story that God is, is writing? And we do, and, and we want to see that. And so this is what Mary, filled with the Holy Spirit, she, she sees how her life fits in with this what, what God has spoken and she sings this scripture-soaked song, soaked song of praise for God's mercy to her, for God's mercy and being mindful of her, looking upon her, for God's mercy and redeeming her, saving her. And here's the thing that Mary clearly understood. She stood in need of a Savior. She stood in need of God's mercy, of God's redeeming mercy. This is why her boast is in the Lord and that He alone is the one worthy of praise. She, she's rejoicing in, in God, her Savior. She's not sinless. She's not perfect. She's, she's not immaculately conceived. She's not the co-redemptrix, the co-redeemer with Christ. She, like all of us, stands in desperate need of a Savior, a Redeemer. So Mary knows she's a sinner. She knows she needs only sinners need a savior and her savior however much she comprehended at this time her savior was in her womb <coughs> mary you i we need a savior we don't just need a little boost from god so so uh so to, to set things right we don't we don't just need a few tips on how to give our get our lives in order we don't just need uh, to know how we can see, succeed in life. We don't just need a few rules so we can reform ourselves. No, we need a Savior. We need a Savior because we're lost and alienated from God because of our sin. And so we, like Mary, we're hopelessly lost unless God's power intervenes and His mercy rescues us. Mary got this. And she reveled in it. Verse 48, He has looked upon the humble state of His servant. She's not proud. Her head's not held high. She, she knows she's undeserving of this mercy. And then nevertheless, she says, Behold. That's a, that's, that's that word, behold, and, and it, it just means, it's an expression of surprise, wonder, astonishment, shock. Behold. It's like, who would have ever thought such a thing? I'm so undeserving. How can you explain this? And her, her only answer is mercy. But she says, Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That doesn't mean that they will hail Mary. That means that they will see her life as a trophy of sovereign grace. Undeserved mercy and favor. God's redeeming mercy. It's a mindful mercy. But it's also a mighty mercy. Verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me. <coughs> and holy is His name. His mercy isn't seen in what God allows Mary to do for him. God's mercy is seen in the mighty things that God has done for her. And so, holy is his name. So, this song, first, it's, it's this personal song of praise for God's mercy to redeem. This is a song, as Martin Luther says, for, for us and to sing after her. Are you singing it's personal praise to God for, for His redeeming mercy. Does this reality of, of God's saving grace in Christ just overwhelm you? Is it, is, it, is it keep your heart tender? 
Uh, just in the way we sing, it shows up in other ways. And one implication I want to talk about this morning, and it connects with an announcement, just an update. One implication is for us is, is this, is we have, we who have been shown such incredible, lavish mercy, we who have, who have, who have experienced this redeeming mercy, undeserved sovereign grace that saved us, we should be zealous to proclaim this good news to others. We, we want to see this message of the redeeming mercy of Jesus Christ to reach every corner of the earth. There are millions, billions, who, have, who remain cut off from this mercy. This is why we continue to go, and this is why we continue to send with the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, I, I know Mike gave an update on grace promise, and just a reminder for, for you, if you've not yet participated in filling out that pledge card for Grace Promise for 2020, I, I, I urge you to do that today, this week at the absolute latest. And, and so uh, th- this, is, this is what should move us to fill out those Grace Promise cards it's, it, and to make sacrifices and, and to give sacrificially and generously in support of world missions. Not statistics, not a you know, tearful story, not, not a guilt uh, it, it's not that. It's not thinking we're earning favor from God by doing those things. It's, it's a response of praise to God for His lavish mercy. The mercy we've received in Christ. And so listen, as of earlier this week, we only have about half the number of pledges we had in, for, for this year. Pledges for next year's budget. And, and only about a third of the dollar dollar amount we had pledged from last year so i know our missions conference was much earlier this year and so some it's probably just slipped your mind so i I, I get that but let's let's commit brothers and sisters as a church as an entire church this isn't just for a few select this is for all of us to respond with praise for god's mercy and resolve to to make these pledges and commit ourselves to to support the work of of missions in the coming year so that our our missionaries remain uh, amply supported, and so this is this is something for all of us to do together. And so that's one way we can respond. So please, again, uh, take note. The Grace Promise cards are over here. You can talk with Mike Hutzel if you have any questions. If you're new here and still trying to figure out what we're talking about, but that's first thing. So the song—it's a personal pray, song of praise for God's mercy to redeem. Secondly, <coughs> these get shorter as we go. A perpetual song of praise for God's mercy to reverse. I'll explain what I mean by that. But Mary doesn't just focus on herself and her baby. This is the the child that she will have, she and Joseph will have together. She focuses on the Messiah for her people. She says, and His mercy is for, for all those who fear Him from generation to generation. This is why Mary's song is our song. It's a song of mercy for every generation to sing. And it's a, it's a song praising God for His mercy, but it's a radical mercy. It's mercy, as I say, to reverse. And you see this in the text here. Mercy to turn the world upside down. You could call this, this song, a, it's, a, it's a subversive song. Some have called it a revolutionary song. And uh, that, that people go off all crazy ways with this song. It's not about us uh, revolting. It's about God turning everything upside down on His own. But that, that this fits the context in which Mary is living. Caesar, Herod, injustice, waiting. So Mary's singing about God's overthrow through Christ of the proud in this world, and he's lifting up of the lowly. 
one historian called this Song of Mary the, the most muscular poem in all of ancient literature. This is not even a believer who said that. He calls it the most muscular poem in all of ancient literature, sung by a young peasant girl. And so there's this contrast in the second part of this song and between the proud and the humble, those of, those of humble estate, the hungry, versus the proud, the mighty, the rich. And so these expressions, they're, they're used throughout Scripture to, 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 in terms of how people relate to God. And so it's not that being a poor, lowly peasant is somehow morally superior than, than having power and, and wealth. That's not the point. But the contrast in term, is in terms of how people see themselves before God. And, and there's temptations that come with, with this. And so the lowly, the humble, they, they honestly assess themselves in light of God's holiness and their sinfulness. That's the case. They, they, they understand, I can't, but God, you can. I'm not able, but you are able. I, I don't know, but God, you know. It's, it's this glad recognition that God is wiser than I am, that he's more generous than I am, that he's more glorious than I am, that he's, more, that he's greater than I am, that he's more powerful than I am, that he's more gracious than I will ever be. That's, that's what it means in this sense. And that's what it means for us to fear the Lord. Verse 50. Those are the ones who receive this mercy. It's not, oh no. I didn't have my quiet time this morning. Lightning bolts are going to come zapping me down. They're gonna, God's going to get me. Or I sinned last week. And I just know, I mean, like God's going to send me some disease. Or He's going to cause me to have a car accident. Or... Or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so afraid of God. That's not the point. It's not like he's just going to pounce on me and rip me to shreds for something I've done or haven't done. That's not, that's not what, he's, what he's talking about. God God's, extends mercy to those who desperately need it and they know it. That's those who fear the Lord. It's, fear is it's just feeling so small before God. When we fear God, we realize we're small. We realize we can't fix it. We, we can't make it on our own. We, we can't control things. We can't do it. But He can. He, is, he, is, he has all power. That's, that's the idea of fearing God. And God's mercy is lavished upon those who fear Him in that way. And those lowly, those lowly who fear the Lord in this context, they stand in contrast to those who are proud and mighty and rich in this world. These are the proud ones who clamor for position and, and status and privilege and wealth, but they refuse to acknowledge that they are utterly dependent upon God. That's what he's talking to. Those who see their need for God will be shown mercy and lifted up, and those who refuse to acknowledge their need for God will be brought down. That's what he's saying. So look at this, verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. So this is what you see. From generation to generation, there's this perpetual song of praise for God's mercy to reverse. Now again, think of the context here. Mary's singing this song of triumph at a time when Caesar and Herod are still on the throne. And justice is still ruling the day. And yet a king would be born who would establish perfect justice and reign forever. That's what Mary's saying. A baby is being born. Caesar's going down. Herod's going down. Everybody liked him. And that's what I mean when I say this is a subversive song. 
But it's a song of this robust faith. Mary is singing in the past tense. Now, I realize God has demonstrated this this tendency. He has overthrown Nebuchadnezzar. He has he has brought down Saul and raised up David in his place. You know the the son that that uh, Jesse didn't even remember he had. And you know he's like, uh, I don't. Oh yeah, I guess I have one other son. And uh, how would you like to be David? I can imagine he was in therapy a little bit after that. But so so God has demonstrated this tendency in Israel's history. But but I don't think that's the extent of what Mary's saying. She's speaking in the past tense of something that's yet to happen. There's this ultimacy to this. She's so confident that this is, this is going to be this grand reversal by God's mercy. And so she announces, God, God has brought down the rulers and He's sent the rich away empty and He's lifted up the humble and filled the hungry with good things in the time when that's not happening. No proud armies have been scattered yet. No thrones have been overturned. No t- tycoons have, have, have been sent away. and Not yet. Rome, Herod, they're still in apparent control, but she knows God will do this through the promised Messiah who's in her womb. And one of the things this shows us is, is God is not divorced from, from history, from the real stuff of the real world. God doesn't live on the, the spiritual aisle of the grocery store that is our lives, where that's all he's concerned about. No, God has power over everything, including the powerful in our world. Daniel 5.21, Daniel would know something about this. The most high God is sovereign over the kingdoms of earth. So God's not just concerned about uh, getting people to heaven. He's also going to carry out this political and economic and social reversal when He returns. Jesus is king and, and he will return and reign in righteousness forever and ever. Those who acknowledge their, their need for him and understand that they will find mercy. And those who say they do not need God will, will be brought low. So Caesar and Herod, they don't have the last word. Justice doesn't have the last word. Suffering doesn't have the last word. Cancer doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. Christ has the last word. And God didn't send His Son in the, in the world to just kind of reign over the religious part of life, over church stuff. God sent His Son ultimately to set all things right. His reign has begun, but one day it will be fully here. Our God will dwell among us. He, will, he Himself will be with us. will be our God. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. This is coming. Mary believes this. And she sings of it. If, you, if you're longing for that, <coughs> Mary has good news for you. She sang good news to us. She sang good news for us so that we can sing it with her. We can anticipate. The proud rulers won't get the last word. God gets the last word. <laughs> That's the mighty mercy that, that Mary celebrated. Mercy that will reverse it all. And that's the mercy we celebrate at Christmas. This is our hope while we wait. So mercy. So there's this song of praise for God's mercy to redeem. This personal song. There's this song of praise for God's mercy to reverse. And then lastly, there's, there's a, this is a promising song of praise for God's mercy to remember. His mercy to remember. So Mary concludes her song in a very powerful way. 
She, she praises God for the certainty of covenant-keeping mercy to Israel, her people. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Forever. So God's, God's mercy and remembering, it, it's, a, it's a sovereign mercy. We know God did not choose Israel because they were in greater number, because they were of greater stock, because they were better than the other nations around them. It was simply God's sovereign love toward them. He says, He has helped them, what? In remembrance of His mercy. It's a sovereign mercy. And, it, and it's secondly, His mercy is His covenant mercy. It's, he, God is faithful to all His promises. He keeps His word. Everything He's spoken will come to pass. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. God made a promise to the whole nation in Jeremiah 31. And, 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 and those are not going to be revoked. Paul reminds us in Romans eleven twenty nine concerning Israel. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So Mary understands the, the faithfulness of Israel God, Israel's God. She knows it to be true. God has remembered, and He will continue to remember His chosen seed, His promises to them. They may fail Him, but He will not fail them. They may be unfaithful, but He will be faithful forever. That's what He says. God keeps His promises forever. Forever. Exhibit A... For Mary, there's that child in her womb. This is what's provoking this. It, it's in Christ that all of God's promises are yes and amen, Paul says. So what God promises, we, we can count on. He shows mercy in remembering all that He has promised to His people, to Israel, to us. Well, Mary, so what she's doing here, she's giving us this big picture of, of God's mercy in this song. Not, not just by recounting history for us, not just by reciting Bible verses, but by magnifying God from the core of her being for this abundant mercy. Mercy to redeem, mercy to reverse, and turn everything upside down, mercy to remember His covenant. And she sings this song knowing she's carrying the Savior of the world in her womb. This Christ child, the Messiah who would be born to her soon. And she, she understands she's part of something that goes way beyond her. This isn't just about Mary and Joseph having a baby. This is not something that would just make a good episode on a TLC show or something like that, baby story. She couldn't possibly full, fully comprehend all that this would mean at the time but she understood this was more. After Jesus was born, there's an old prophet, some Simeon. We may come back and look at his song after Christmas. I'm toying with that idea. But this old Simeon, he would say of her that her soul would be crushed in grief. Luke 2.35, she says to her, a sword will pierce through your own soul, Mary. This day is coming. When Mary stood at the foot of the cross, saw this child that she brought forth from her womb, nailed to that cross, who can possibly imagine 
how sharp and how deep that piercing to her soul went. Yet in the bigger picture, it was the climax of God's plan. It was foundational to God's saving plan. Her son, God's son, his death on the cross, this is the greatest display of redemptive, reversing, remembering mercy. And this is what we remember as we gather at the table in just a moment after we sing. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the mercy that is ours, Father. I pray that our souls, our spirits would would sing the very core of our being. We would have this mindful remembrance of, of your mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Your, your mercy to, to redeem us. Your mercy to reverse everything, Father, that, that we who hunger and thirst for you, Father, will be, will be satisfied. Your mercy to remember your promises, Lord. So help our souls to sing out now as we join and, and make Mary's song our song. We sing it with her, Lord, that our souls magnify the Lord. Our spirits rejoice in you, God, our Savior. Help us to sing now with, with full hearts, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.